0: This morning, once again, we're looking at John chapter 17, and the subject, as you know, that we have been handling is chasing after your Father's heart. John 17, today we want to look at verses 20 through 26. In the past, we have noted how Jesus, more than anyone else, was wholly committed to his Father's heart. At every single moment, with every thought, word, and deed, everything about Jesus was simply an expression of and representative of the Father's heart. In our lives, we are called to the same sort of posture that we would humbly run after the heart of the Father as it has been perfectly revealed in the person of Jesus Christ. This morning, uh, the subject matter the the, the the general subject matter of John seventeen twenty to twenty six has to do with oneness in the body of Christ for the purpose of the gospel. And we want to look at that subject today. Let's look at John seventeen. I'll begin reading at verse twenty. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you and these know that you have sent me. I made known to them your name and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. Chasing after your father's heart. We see in the beginning of this section that Jesus is praying for you. In John 17 verse 9, we recall how Jesus said, I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. And in that verse, Jesus is talking about his prayers for his apostles who were committed to him. Now in verse 20, he prays for you, he prays for every single human being that has ever lived since the apostles who has come to believe in Jesus because of the words given to the apostles. And so this prayer is for you in a very, very specific way. Jesus is praying for you, and and the fact that Jesus prays for us should be an amazing captivating thought. I want to look at three other places where Jesus specifically is said to pray for, for you, because I think that the subjects found there are the background and the foundation for what he prays for here. In, in the book of Romans, these passages are all familiar to you. In the book of Romans, chapter 8, Romans chapter 8, beginning at verse 31, you'll find these words. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised? Who is at the right hand of God? Who indeed is interceding for us? Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Now in this particular context, it's God's love revealed in Jesus Christ that's being talked about. And and Jesus' intercession for us comes in the context, it comes embedded in this reality that God is for us, He has justified us, There's no condemnation for us, that that nothing can separate us from the love of Christ. And, And Jesus is interceding within that context to affirm to us by the Spirit and by his word that there is no possibility of a believer ever being separated from the love of God in Christ Jesus. It is impossible. You cannot be separated from God's love in Jesus Christ. It cannot happen. And that has to be something that you know deep in your soul, no matter what happens. It is impossible for you to ever be separated from your Father's love in Jesus Christ. And according to Psalm 63, there is no better thing than the love of God. His love is better than life itself. And all the joys and great things that can come in life... It doesn't even scratch the surface of comparing with God's love for you in Christ. The second passage is found in the book of Hebrews, chapter 7, another very familiar passage. Hebrews 7, I'll read uh, verse 25. Consequently, he, meaning Jesus, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. So again, in this particular context, the writer of Hebrews is saying that that Jesus intends and is able to save you completely. Everything that salvation has to offer, you are not going to miss any of it. Because he is ever living to intercede for you. He is praying for you. And um, so it's not only the love that you can't be separated uh, from, It's the salvation that you receive in totality. And also in 1 John, 1 John chapter 2 is another passage. Uh, 1 John chapter 2 verse 1, My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Now here in 1 John, what's being talked about is, is the help we have if we sin. Sin is the one thing, as you know, that has separated us from God. Sin was the thing that caused Adam and Eve to be kicked out of the garden. And here we see that even as believers and followers of Jesus Christ, sin is a dangerous thing. But the beauty of the passage is that we have an advocate. We have a defense attorney who comes to court with us. And and Jesus is the only attorney that comes to court having already paid for the crime that subpoenas us to the court. The prosecuting attorney, Satan, stands up to accuse, and Jesus stands up to excuse, and as judge and juror, he stands up also to dismiss the case wholly. And whatever accusation can be brought against us, it is completely dismissed, because Jesus Christ is the propitiation. He's the one who has taken the wrath of God upon himself for our sins. And so what you see in Romans and in Hebrews and in 1 John is is this, this beauty of God's love and security in that love as foundational in our relationship with Jesus and with the Father. And it is with that as a backdrop that Jesus says, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one. Just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. In verse 21, you see the goal of Jesus' prayer. He's praying for oneness. You see that in these verses. That's what he's praying for, oneness. But, but you, you wouldn't think about having that kind of unity or oneness in the body of Christ unless you knew, number one, that you were loved by the Father, secure in his love. And the goal of this oneness, he says, is so that the world might believe, Father, that you have sent me, Jesus is saying this, sent the Son. So so the goal of this prayer is that the world might believe the gospel. Um, You see the same thing being said in verse 8. Look at verse 8 of John 17. For I have given them, meaning the apostles, the words that you gave me, and they have received them. And have come to know in truth that I came from you, and that they have believed that you sent me. So the last part of verse 8 is matched by the last part of verse 21. It's the same goal. Jesus said, I gave my apostles your word. They received them, and they know, and they believe that you sent me. They believe the gospel. And so he's saying the same thing over here. I pray that the disciples would be one so that the world would believe the gospel. And so we see how word and deed come together. That Jesus is praying for a unity within the body of Christ. He's praying for oneness in the body of Christ, a love in the body of Christ, because it's proof positive to the world that the gospel is real. Um... When he says here that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me, what that means uh, is discovered in John chapter 10. What does it mean that the Father's in the Son? In John chapter 10, verse uh, 37 and 38, If I am not doing... The works of my Father then don't believe me. But if I do them, even though you do not believe me, believe the works that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I am in the Father. Once again in John chapter 14, verse, um, verse 10, uh, Do you not believe that I am in the Father? and that the Father is in me. The words that I say to you I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Um, one more verse uh, This is found in Second Corinthians, Second Corinthians chapter five, beginning at verse seventeen, second Corinthians five seventeen. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old is passed away, behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself himself not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusted to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. And so, we see in these passages in John 10, John 14, and 2 Corinthians 5, that what Jesus is saying when he says the Father is in him, is that what, what god is doing god is at work in jesus christ god was at work through jesus christ in the incarnation and god is the one who in christ and through christ was reconciling the world to himself and um and so when when jesus says that 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 he wants us to be one just as the father was in him you know he's setting something up here he says that the father was at work in Me, Jesus is saying, the Father was at work in Jesus, reconciling the world, making his appeal to the world to be reconciled, to be restored back to the Father. And then he says, and I in you, and we talked about this at length in the past, I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this one, but what does it mean that Jesus is in the Father? Well, it means uh, John 4, 34. My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. Jesus uh... Uh, says in John five nineteen, so Jesus said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. John five thirty, I can do nothing on my own, as I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just, because I seek not my own will, but the will of Him who sent me. Last verse, John six thirty eight, for I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of Him who sent me. That's what it means that Jesus is in the Father, He. He wholly is committed and aligns himself behind what the Father is doing. And that's the only thing he does. He's in the Father for that purpose. Um, He's united to him. He's one with him. I and my Father, I and the Father are one, he says. One in purpose, one in being, one in what what their objective is. And so he says, just like you, Father, are in me and I'm in you, just like we've partnered together, so to speak, for this purpose of reconciling the world back to ourselves, restoring humanity underneath God again. Um, He wants his believers that they also may be in us. And so he wants us as followers of Jesus Christ to also make the gospel our priority, make the gospel our purpose. We we talk about this a lot, and it's, it's with good reason. Jesus brings it up a lot. And particularly in this prayer, he keeps repeating it over and over again because it's the point. Jesus wants us to be in the Father and in the Son in, in terms of uniting together in the body of Christ for the purpose of the gospel. Look at a passage uh, that, that spells this out so clearly in the book of Philippians. Chapter 1, you know the passage, Philippians 1, beginning at verse 27. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel. It means only behave as a citizen worthy of the gospel. How do you behave as a citizen worthy of the gospel? So that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you. Here's how you behave as a citizen worthy of the gospel. That you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. So so Paul is saying here that, that believers have to have the same mind with respect to the gospel. They have to have the same spirit and same objective that we gather together so that there might be a faith in the gospel in the world. That's the purpose of us gathering together. And... um. Is that, is that what you're seeking? Is that what you're longing for as a follower of Jesus Christ, for unity in the body of Christ? You know, we look at all of the denominations out there and all of the differences of, of opinion about things, and we think, well, this is impossible. It's not impossible because Jesus prayed for it. And if he prayed for it, he's going to get what he prays for. And so we have to be on board with with what his prayer is saying and what his purpose is saying, Jesus will bring about this unity. It's already existing as it is. But we need to work out this type of unity in our daily life. We need to prioritize the gospel, the good news about Jesus Christ. It's the main thing. Can you think of something better to talk to people about than the gospel of Jesus Christ? That's a rhetorical question. Of course there's nothing better you could talk about than the gospel of Jesus Christ. What could possibly be better than that? Um, It doesn't mean that you don't genuinely build relationships and talk about all other kinds of things, but if in the course of your talking to people and encountering people, your objective, your goal, your aim, your main thing that you're looking forward to is getting down to a conversation about the meat and bones of the gospel, if that's not your objective, then you're doing a huge disservice to the people you know. If your prayer is, this is a prayer, John 17, if your prayer is not that, Lord, I want us to be one in the body because I want our our witness to be credible, and effective that when I talk to people who, who are at my work or in my neighborhood, that, that my aim in holding genuine conversations with them is that we would get to a place in our friendship, in our relationship, in our conversations, that we get to the place of talking about Jesus. There's nothing uh, disingenuous about that. That's, that can you Again, I'll ask the rhetorical question. Can you think of something better to talk to about people? Talk to with people. Than the gospel of Jesus Christ. Of course, there is nothing better. Um, and 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 what what the goal here um, that you see here? We talked about Philippians chapter one verse twenty-seven, is is to have this mindset uh, that we see in Paul in Acts chapter twenty. We looked at this passage several times and. Uh, sometimes we don't like to look at this passage, but we need to. In, in Acts chapter 20, verse 24, it says, But I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course and the ministry that I receive from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. Um you know, sometimes we read this passage and we say, "Well, you know, that's the Apostle Paul. He he's an apostle. He's doing ministry. That was his calling. That's not for me. That's for him. That's what God. That's the way God used him." And um, I mean, you're free to say whatever you want to. It's a free country, uh, and you're also free to be wrong. Which, if you're saying that, you are. Um, in in verse in chapter twenty, verse thirty-two, it says. Um, and now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you an, the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. And, and the, I guess the, the firm proof that this is not just for Paul, but for you, is to ask yourself, well, who is Paul talking to when he says this? Well, he's talking to the church at Ephesus. He's talking to the leaders and the community in Ephesus. And if you remember the book of Ephesians, and and just to give you a a bird's-eye view of it real quickly, chapter 1 is about worshiping God, blessing him, For the gospel of Jesus Christ. Chapter 2 is a reminding ourselves of what we used to be before Jesus knew us. We were dead in our transgressions. We were deceived by the devil. We were objects of wrath. But then God came with his love and his mercy and he saved us by his grace. And he saved us for his good works. And then chapter 2 ends with the fact that we have been brought into this community, this fellowship, this people of God built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself, the cornerstone. Chapter 3 is Paul recounting his ministry, his calling to reveal the mystery of God, the Gentiles being called uh, to faith in Jesus Christ. And chapter 4 talks about the very unity that Jesus is praying for in John 17. Uh, that we would maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. And, and he goes into the oneness. There's one Lord, one's, one, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all. And he talks about how we've been given gifts by by Jesus, right? To, to minister to the body of Christ, to build up one another in love. And, and, and that God has given you a gift, to build up the body of Christ, to prepare the body for something. Built up for what? Built up for for something that's coming. And in chapter, uh, the last part of chapter four and into chapter five, he talks about a life of holiness, a life given over to the imitation of God in all of your relationships and all that you do. Particularly, it's, it, it, it highlights marriage and, and family life and and life on your job. It talks about all these things. And then then in chapter 6, verse 10, he says, finally, and it's not finally because the sermon's been long and I'm finally coming to an end, but it's finally, this is what all of chapter 1, 2, 3, 4, and 5 has been pointing to, is for you to be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might, to put on the whole armor of God and to go out and bear arms, to go to war spiritually for the gospel to be known. That is the point. And all this talk of holiness and loving your wife and submitting to your husband and loving your parents and obeying them and and being being true about your money and all this stuff is, is to make your witness credible and effective in the world in which we live. Someone told me one time, people will believe your Redeemer when they see your redeemed life. When people see the changes in you, the transformation that's taken place in you, they see that there's substance there, not just a bunch of sayings and a bunch of speaking, but there's substance. And that's what that's what the objective is. And, and Revelation 2.4 talks about Ephesus. Jesus rebukes Ephesus because they walked away from their first love. Now, what is this getting at? It's, it's getting at this, this call to be committed to the gospel. We see it in Paul in Acts 2, Acts 20. He's talking to the church of Ephesus. We see it in the whole book of Ephesians. And we see that that's what the objective is in John 17, verses 21, 20 and 21, that he wants the world to believe that God sent his son Jesus. And so it's it's not simply uh, uh, you're your words, your message. It's, it's proclaiming the word of God. Of course, people can't believe unless they hear, hear the message. But it's also that word being supported and made credible by a life of oneness, a life of love, a life of God's people that are prioritizing the gospel of Jesus Christ in their life and in their relationships, in their, in their conversations with people. That that becomes the priority, and uh, in verse, let's look. Uh, what's what this? This is built on um, a life that is given over to the gospel, a life of sacrifice, and we see that in verse twenty-two. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one even as we are one. What glory did the Father give to His Son? Well, the primary glory within context that Jesus is talking about is the glory of Calvary, the glory of a life laid down, a life that exposes what the Father's heart is really like. When Jesus hung on the cross, you saw what the Father's heart was really like. And he's saying that same glory that God the Father gave to him, he gave that glory to you. And sometimes we we don't see it that way, and we need to, That a life given up for Christ and for the gospel is a glorious thing. It is a wonderful thing. It's the only way to really live. Look at Mark chapter 8, verse 35 and 36. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel will save it. Jesus is, is really making things plain here that if you try to hold on to your life, all the stuff that you want and you desire and you long for and your comforts and your conveniences, and if you try to hold on to those things with dear life, you're gonna lose the most important thing of all. But if you're willing to say, hey, Lord, I'm willing to give up every single thing if necessary so that through my life, the gospel would be made plain. Through my life, you would get the glory. Through my life, you would be made famous. As long as that happens, as long as, as that my life bears witness and gives testimony to your grace in Jesus Christ, I don't need anything else. And, if, and, and you know, not everybody's called to be a martyr. And that's not what this passage is pointing to. But this passage is pointing to a readiness. It's pointing to a posture. It's pointing to an attitude of willingness to be able to give it all up so that the gospel is central, so that the kingdom of God is advanced and extended through your life. And that's what we're called to. Uh, That's what we're called to be committed to. And that's a glorious thing. That's the glory that God had given to his son, that Jesus gave up it all, So that people would come to know the Father. And that we should have the same sort of attitude and posture that we're willing to give it all up so that people can come to know God the Father. And we have to live with that kind of attitude and posture in mind. Verse 23. And, and, And let me just back up just a little bit. It says that when we have that kind of posture in verse 22, that also builds oneness in the body of Christ. That builds the oneness in the body of Christ. Um, it says, give them the glory that you gave me so that they may be one. That only that unity is obtained in the body of Christ when God's people are willing to prioritize the gospel to such a degree that they're willing to let go of everything in life if possible so that the gospel is central and primary in their living. Um Verse 20, 23, I in them and you in me that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you have sent me and love them even as you loved me. And so here again, the, the goal in, in this particular part of the prayer is so that the world might know that um, the father sent the son and that also the father loves the believer the same way that the Father loves the Son, Jesus Christ. That's something that's hard to imagine, that your Father in Heaven loves you the same way He loves Jesus. Um, That's what it says here, uh, that you love me even as you have loved me. Now what is going on here? uh, Jesus again is praying for this unity and this oneness in the body of Christ so that the world might know the gospel. And might know that we are loved by the Father. Now, one of the things that's that's going on there is the access that we have. If you turn to John 16, verse 26, it says, John 16, 26, In that day you will ask in my name, and I do not say to you that I will ask the Father on your behalf, for the Father Himself loves you because you have loved me and have believed that I came from God. That's part of what it means that the world will know that you have access to God. That they'll realize through the oneness that you have some kind of special connection to God. That you can call on the name of the Lord and and He hears you. Um, And and the world will know that Uh, when there is this oneness, there is this Accessibility that we have with the Father. Access. Not only that, if you turn to John chapter 5, um, John chapter 5, verse 20, you find Jesus saying this, uh, "...for the Father loves the Son and shows him all that he himself is doing." And greater works than these will he show him so that you may marvel. And so the way that the father loved the son was by revealing his will and his purposes to the son. And this goes back to a long conversation we had during the discussion time where um, there'll come a day, which has already come, where where people will seek out the believer because not only do they realize these guys have access to God and I want to get in on that, but they also, they know what God is up to. Now, nobody knows the will of God perfectly, but there are things clearly revealed in the Bible that express to us what God wants. And people will come to know that, Jesus says. He says, Father, make them one so that the world might know that, that you love them the way you love me. That they will, the world will know that these people not only have access to the Father, but they have access to his revelation, to his heart, to his revealed will. And so uh, the oneness is for that purpose as well. So verse 24 says, Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am, to see my glory that you have given me, because you love me before the foundation of the world. Now this aspect of Jesus' glory here is is talking about um something different than the glory of his crucifixion it's related to that of course but it's the glory that he had before the foundation of the world as he talks about in John 17:5 that, that that Jesus is praying for us to be with him that we would that we would be with him where he is he's in heaven right now he's praying that we would get there that's the only reason we get there is because of his Death on the cross and because of his intercession on our behalf. And the glory that he wants us to see has a reason. There's a reason for seeing that glory. Uh, we, we notice in, in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 13, or verse 18, I'm sorry. 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18. It says, and we all with unveiled face beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another, for this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. And so uh, Paul is saying here that when we see the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ, it changes us. It makes us more like Christ. And we see this also in a very familiar passage in 1 John chapter 3. See what kind of love the Father has given us that we should be called children of God, and so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is because it did not know him. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who hopes in this way purifies himself even as he is pure. And so what Jesus is saying when he prays in verse 24, I desire that they be be with me where I am, so that they would see the glory as Jesus is praying that we would be like him. Because in seeing Jesus, uh, we are transformed into his likeness and image. And we see his glory revealed in the scripture and it, it starts that process of sanctification, and there'll come a day when we will see him face to face, and we will be like him. Um, and that's what Jesus is praying for. He's not saying, uh, it's not a boastful prayer, like I want them to see how great I am, uh, but uh, in, in an arrogant and condescending way. But Jesus is really see- seeking what is best for you. He's seeking for you to be totally transformed Uh, and sanctified and and glorified into his likeness and image. And that's what he's desiring for the Father. He says, I want these guys to see me so that they would be like me. That's what Jesus is is praying for, that, that, that finally, after all these millennia, we would finally have the image and likeness of God restored in us in a way that really reflects the glory and beauty of God. Um... And, and, you know, I desire for those, there the ones that you gave me. There's an emphasis there on the fact that, that we're the bride of Christ. We are given to him. And it says that Jesus Christ was loved before the foundation of the world. Some people ask the question, why did God create? Um, and come up with all kinds of answers. God created the world because he loved Jesus. That's why he created the world. Uh, The Bible is very clear about that. It says in the book of Colossians um, that everything uh, was created for a purpose. In the book of Colossians chapter 1, we see that in verse 15 and following. He, talking about Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him, and for him. Everything was created for him. It was the Father's gift to his Son. He loved his Son so much, he said, I'm going to create a whole universe for you. It's all for you. God created because he loved his Son. And Jesus wants us to see that love the Father has for his Son, that glory, uh, because it says in in verse 24, because you have loved me before the foundation of the world which again points out the reason why the world was founded was because of Christ. Verse 25, O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know that you have sent me. And here Jesus is highlighting the fact that it's the ones who know that Jesus was sent by the Father that, again, are the hope of the world. Well, God is our hope. Christ is our hope. But in a, in a partnership with the Father, the church becomes uh, God's, God's headquarters on earth. It becomes the hope of the world, the light and salt of the world. And we talked about that last week a little bit, and we won't go into so much detail here. But he's emphasizing that fact again, that the world doesn't know you, but I know you, and they know that, that you sent me. And so, so, you know, answer this prayer. And the last verse here, I made known to them your name. And I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. And uh, here we see uh, the conclusion of the prayer which which has profound implications, Jesus is saying uh, that he made known the name of the Father. Here again, for the fourth time in this prayer, the name of the Father comes up. The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful, gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving wickedness, transgression, and sin, who will by no means clear the guilty. Have you memorized that? You know your name, right? You should know your Father's name. He's the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. He is the I am that I am, the bread of life, right? The light of the world, the living water, the door, the good shepherd, the the resurrection and the life, the way, the truth and the life, the true vine. You should know his name. He's your father. And so he's saying, I want them to know. He said, I made known to them your name. And he says, look what he said. I will continue to make it known to them. So this is Jesus' prayer. This is his commitment is that he's going to continue to make the Father's name known to you. And here's the reason why. Is so that the love that God loved his son with might be in you. You want to love the way God loves? You want to, that love that's promised? You know, the Spirit of God poured out the love of God within our hearts? You want that love to really blossom in you? It comes from recognizing the name of the Father and the implications of that name and having Jesus continue to reveal that name to you. That's why we need to talk about that more, the Lord, the Lord of God, merciful, gracious, and slow to anger and so forth, because, because it's through understanding the being of God. That's what the name of God is. It's the being of God. He's talking about who God is, what he's like. It's in knowing God that we come to love God the way God loves. By knowing the name of God, we come to have the very heart of God. We, our heart begins to love the way God's heart loves. It begins to beat the same rhythm as God's heart beats. We begin to love the way, he, the way he loves. I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them. Some people say, well, Jesus can love, but I can't love. I can't forgive like that, but that's a lie, because you can, because Jesus said he reveals the Father to you so that the love of God might be in you. You know, you think about love, and we'll, Lord willing, talk about it during the discussion, but the First Corinthians 13 passage, love is patient, love is kind, just to take a few things. Patience means the ability to tolerate evil done to you, and Kind to respond in kindness to those who've done the evil. That's what love is. Love is, not, uh, love is not boastful. It doesn't brag about itself. It doesn't make a record of wrong things done to it. It doesn't rejoice with evil. It rejoices with the truth. You know, love is is this way. It's not jealous. like Like Joseph's brothers were jealous of him but it rejoices. If something good happens to someone, it's happy about that. It rejoices in that. The only way you can have that kind of loving heart is if you are camping out on the being of God revealed by the name of God. And, uh, and not only that, that the love would be in them, but Jesus said that I would be in them. That's the reason why he wants, wants to, uh, uh, pray this prayer. He wants He wants to dwell inside of you himself. That's what he's up to in this, this final uh, commitment. He says, I'm going to continue to make your name known so that I can be inside of people. I can be inside of your people. And this, you know, the reason why Jesus dwells in us is to take us, to plumb us to the depths of God's love. Isn't that what the Apostle Paul said, that According to the riches of his glory, he would strengthen you with power in his inner being so that Christ would dwell in your hearts through faith, that you be rooted and grounded in love and have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length, the height and depth, to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you might be filled with the fullness of God. That's what God's objective is. That's what Jesus' objective in dwelling inside of you. It's like Paul said, so that the love of Christ compels you, constrains you, and controls you. This is Jesus' prayer. Chasing after your Father's heart. Take this prayer and pray it to God in concert with Christ that he would transform your heart and make your heart like the heart of your Father and then send you into this world with that heart of the Father and that your impact, As, as the Apostle Paul said, he would do immeasurably more than anything you can ask or even imagine according to the power at work within you. To him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Let the church say amen. God bless you.